Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure to speak with Samuel Say of slowtowrite.com. I invited Samuel on to chat about his recent review of Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. We also got the opportunity to talk about his pro-life work in Canada. If you're interested in any of that and supporting Samuel, I tried to leave as many of the links in the show notes as possible, so go find them there. But before we get started, I thought I'd mention a book from our shelf that might provide a quick pick-me-up, Heaven Misplaced. Though most Christians refrain from predicting exactly when our world will end, many believe that when Earth's finale does arrive, it will be a catastrophe. They expect that before Christ comes back to reclaim his own, Satan will escape his chains and return to wreak havoc on our planet. Details vary, but the general assumption is the same. Things will get much, much worse before they get better. But is this really what the Bible teaches? Leaving aside the theological terms that often confuse and muddle this question, Douglas Wilson instead explains eschatology as the end of the great story in the world, the story of humanity. He turns our attention back to the stories and prophecies of Scripture and argues for hopeful optimism, the belief that God will be true to his promises, that his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that the peace and goodwill we sing about at Christmas will one day be a reality here on earth. Get Heaven Misplaced at Canon Press. Without further ado, meet Samuel Say. All righty, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. Special guest this week is Samuel Say of slowtowrite.com. You can also find him at uh, slowtowrite. That's his Twitter handle as well. Um, Samuel, I want to jump right into the sort of the current controversies, but maybe not the one everyone is expecting me to ask you. I don't want to bring up, uh, at least I don't want to bring up yet your sustained passion for nineties boy bands, but, uh, well, well, just uh, one correction there. It's not a, a passion for boy bands is a passion for the one and only important boy band out there okay. being the Backstreet Boys, of course. <laughs> All the rest are just posers. Backstreet Boys are the only ones that matter. Okay, good. I'm glad the record's straight. I misspoke. It's there for the record. We. I hope to come back to that. But I do want to talk about you released a blog, I believe it was last week, uh, that... Uh, yeah that moved around the internet pretty quick. And it was your review of uh, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Mm. Yeah, I'm guessing no one's heard of that book, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it might have come across a few timelines recently. Um, <laughs> so if you'll just pretend that some of our listeners have been uh, pleasantly living their lives under a rock, totally <laughs> ignorant of what that even is. Um, what is this book? Why is it popular? Yeah. Um, so this book um, is, uh, as you said, White Fragility. And um, well, the full title is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. So you can see the premise of the book right there within the title that the book assumes that it's hard for white people to talk about racism, which is interesting because right now over the last uh, couple of months, that's what everyone, including white people, has been talking about 
you know, all across the world in, um, you know, in light of George Floyd's murder. Um, right. You know, by the hands of uh, Derek Chauvin. But the book was released in 2018 by a white woman. And um, the, ho- the whole point of her book was to um, to explain why in basically her theory as to why white people, especially white progressives, um, and really also um, white, you know, I find it interesting, especially white progressive women, uh, why she believes that they don't accept the notion that they could be racist or that they don't believe that or that when they hear any kind of accusation against them about being racist, they believe right away that they're not racist. Or it's also just in her in her words, all the fears, anger, sadness or even tears that white people uh, produce after a racist event or an accusation of them being racist. So in, um, in the book, she says, so all that is what she would describe as, as white fragility, that white people are fragile when it comes to race um, because all white people are racist and they don't want to accept that. And she zeroes in on progressives and especially um, you know, progressive women because she says that it is pro- progressives and especially women who think that they are not racist because of her progressive views. And she even says and admits in the book that she herself is essentially a racist. Um, and it's essentially, she, she, she also says in the book that every single white person, every white person, um, in a Western world, doesn't matter what kind of upbringing they have, it's impossible for a white person essentially to be racist uh, to to not be racist. So she applies a framework that some listeners might be aware of, um, you know, called anti-racism. Now, anti-racism doesn't mean what the word suggests. Um, <laughs> anti-racism really means, and I in the in the review I mentioned it uses racist means to accomplish uh sorry he uses racism to defeat racism essentially in that it supposes that every white person is racist and that the entire western culture it's the entire system is racist so to be anti-racist means to essentially take every thought captive against racist ideas but especially racist systems including things like uh believe it or not individuality or objective thinking essentially. So she kinds of, she, she calls for a form of cultural relativism that um, would lead one to believe that it doesn't matter what your intentions are, are if you're a white person, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter again what your intentions were, or what the actions were, so long as a black person or an anti-racist white person like her um, if they, if if they declare your actions or your intentions as racist, then it's racist. So then I joke I joke in the book review. Then since I label her ideas racist, according to her own standards, she can't reject my accusation. She has to accept it that her book is a racist book, <laughs> which is of course an absurd idea. Yeah, but that's what she's teaching, and it's become so popular. Uh, it was a bestseller when it was released in 2018. But since George Floyd's killing um, and just 
all the talks about racism, it's become the bestseller. It's become the book that everyone is recommending as the essential um, helpful book on racism, which is quite concerning. Now, we already clearly know where you stand on this book, but I wanted to <laughs> read, uh, I wanted to give the folks at home a quick teaser to the blog. I hope everybody goes uh, and reads it. It'll be in the show notes if you're looking for it. But you start this review like this. When I was a boy in Ghana, I once had a massive nail pierced through my foot, and I suffered through a makeshift surgery by my mom without anesthesia. And that experience was significantly more enjoyable than reading this book. It is astonishingly bad. That's an electric <laughs> lead. That is an electric <laughs> lead. Um, <laughs> so uh, you, you obviously disagree with it. Uh, was there anything at any time that you thought, okay, she's on to something here, or uh, I get what she means here, although that's wrong. Is there anything to it that you, I mean, it, clearly it doesn't sound like that, but I, or maybe a better question would be, what are people hearing that it uh, resonates with them? Why, why do people like this book? Mm-hmm. Well, before, if you don't mind, before I answer that, I think um, you were asking if there was anything that I thought perhaps was maybe helpful yeah, in the book, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the only thing that I thought, I, I said this in the review, that I agreed with is that she says that um, white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. And I said, yeah, that's true. This book proves it because she is a white progressive. And um, her words are very damaging to all people. Um, so I'm very, very concerned about this book. So that's the only thing in the book that honestly I would agree with, because everything else is so bad. So um, that, but that, I think that is interesting, though, right? That she went after progressives, white yeah. women progressives, and not necessarily like your standard Midwest NASCAR race attending white person. Yes. Um, yes. Although I'm sure they're included. They don't. I'm sure they don't get a pass. But it is interesting that. Uh, I think you, when you quoted her, she says, especially progressives. Yes. And, and I think that answers your question as to why it's resonating with so many people. Mm-hmm. It's resident, resonating especially with progressive women or progressive white women because progressive ideology is already, um, is, 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 it's already pandering. It's already leading to her words and to her ideas, right? The progressives already believe that we live in a systemically racist culture. They've already embraced the concept of anti-racism that, uh, now, not all, not all, of course, but it's becoming very common in progressive circles. So that's why it's her audience. And it's, it's odd. It's the audience that loves to hurt themselves, right? <laughs> like they... There is, there is, it's odd, but white progressives seems to seem to get a thrill out of being miserable over how racist they are or how racist the culture is. And I think that's why they love the book, because it's oddly enough telling many people what they want to hear. And then they can then play heroes because the book is not just condemning white progressives, it's saying, Therefore, since you are condemned, right now, here's all the things you can you can do to be a white savior. 
it's a very odd <laughs> kind of right. idea, but that's essentially what the book says. And so Robin DiAngelo uh, wouldn't phrase herself as, as this, but essentially she is a white savior. Um, because if she were to really believe what she's saying in the book, then she should have no authority whatsoever to be speaking on this. And yet she then says that because she admits she's a racist, because she is trying to fight racism, she is a helpful voice for white people in getting them to recognize their own racist identities um, and or, or systems. So um, I think it's, it's resonating with many people because unfortunately over the last number of years, uh, critical theory or critical race theory or anti-racism uh, or social justice ideology has been very much embraced in our culture and especially amongst progressives. And this is just, unfortunately, the um, the more radical version of an already radical view. I don't know if you remember, there was the book that came out uh, maybe a decade or more ago called, uh, there was like a really funny hit in the Lifeway or Christian bookstores uh, called Stuff White People Like. I heard of that, but I never read it. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, and it was funny, you know, it was like, these are definitely like white people things. Um, <laughs> and it was obviously poking fun, but I think if we were to republish the book today, like number one, numero uno would be uh, feeling bad about you mm. or it's it's yeah. like white people love that and then then i think as you were saying with uh d'angelo's book then we also love to swing the pendulum into like this why we love the freedom riders where it's like we could come in and save the day and yeah. uh it, it's a it's a funny thing that white people love and it could be innocent and then it, obviously we are watching it now in real time be very very dangerous yeah. and, and it's fascinating because in her ideology, in her theory, if you are a white person who admits you are a racist, you are a more moral person, you are a better person hmm. than a white conservative who says, no, I am not a racist, or a white Christian who says, I'm not a racist. So in condemning themselves, they're really saying, I'm better than everybody else because I at least know who I am, and therefore I'm able to be an ally for black people. So just from reading her words, uh, her words are extremely offensive to me as a black person. It's very much pandering, and it seems to be very much of, I am a great person, unlike all my friends who are not uh, recognizing how racist they are, unlike me. It's a very strange, right. um, you know, it's not new, of course, unfortunately, right, throughout history, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So it's not new, but in, in this particular sense of understanding racism, it is new and it is radical and it is very destructive. So one thing I'm curious about, uh, as you enter the debates and like I mentioned, you have the blog and, uh, your Twitter is, is, is a very popular one with the way the racial feud, uh, teams break out. It's funny because we were all sort of born with the jersey we are with the jersey we're supposed to wear in these debates. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, it seems like with D'Angelo's book, like the hero uh, in her book is the white person who can say, who can reflect and think, oh, yeah, I am that, but I choose to be better. Um, you know, I I'm a white guy. I'm the guy like when you see me, it looks like I left 
Whole Foods and I'm headed to the van store. Um, <laughs> and so when a racial issue is brought to me, I, I feel like the perception is either he's going to uh, be like, what? White fragility? And, it's, and, and the way they've set up the argument is like, see, if you didn't mm, like it, yeah. it's because you're fragile. Um, yeah. Or I can be the hero that sort of reflects on my experiences and everything else. And so, so I'm sort of, I get pigeonholed, but you're not so different on the other side (laughs) where you are, as we mentioned, you're from Ghana, you Mm -hmm. are a black young man. Mm -hmm. So how is it on, on that side where you look at this and no one's going to look at you and be like, well, that's because you're white that you don't like white fragility. Um, do you feel like you were born with a jersey and people are expecting you to be to to play for that team? Oh, absolutely. Um and in her book, uh, I mentioned in the uh, review that uh unhelpful generalizations against white people leads to unhelpful generalizations against black people too. Um because she does that. She since she she assumes or says that all white people are racist. When you do that, then you are then naturally going to assume that all black people are something else. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, she <laughs> I, again, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to reference my review all the time, but uh, I mentioned in the review that sometimes her words read like she was plagiarizing Richard Spencer. <laughs> can you mention who richard spencer is for some of us that would yeah so, so richard spencer is um is or was essentially the leader of the alt-right uh he is a white nationalist white supremacist um full of just racist ideas and he openly says that white people are superior than black people he says he believes in white privilege he believes right. in all those things right. in fact he said himself that he believes that white progressives very interestingly that white progressives are the easiest people to turn into white supremacists because they already have the same views that he does that black people are now so i i so i'll phrase it this way a white supremacist or an alt-right person would say that white people are better than black people. Or they would say white people are more privileged than black people. And they are still say that with pride. But an anti-racist like Robin D'Angelo or a progressive would say our society treats white people better than black people. White people, we just innately innately racist it's just who we are they would all agree that a person's skin color shapes who they are they say the same thing except one says it with pride and the other says it with pity it's the exact same thing they're saying so in the book Robin D'Angelo talks about how when she goes to a high society event or when she goes to a museum she is she expects that she's not going to be the only white person there. Well, the assumption then is, if you're a black person and you go there, you should expect that there won't be other black people there too, which assumes that she believes that 
black people can't be well off or that black people aren't well off. Or in some other part too in the book, she talks about how some of her friends, um, you know, referred to a neighborhood um, that was filled with mostly black people as a, a, a high crime area. Now, those friends didn't say anything about race. They simply just said, be careful of that area. It's a high crime area. And then she then says, oh, you're just saying that because th that community is filled with many black people. She says that to accuse her friends of racism, but she doesn't realize she's the one that's tying black people to to <laughs> crime. Right. 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 So she has a lot of the same ideas as white supremacists, but because she thinks she's saying it in a loving manner or because she's saying it in an anti-racist ideology, she doesn't she wouldn't consider, although obviously she would say that she is racist, but she wouldn't say that she would say her ideas are a means to to destroy or to deconstruct her racism. Now, this book sort of drops in a certain moment. You know, the certain mo certain books just it almost seems like somebody left the gas oven on. There's so much gas in the room, and all it took was like one little match, and then things, boom, exploded. Yeah. Can yeah. Uh, what? What's your general take as we look at the world? What is the landscape of the world right now that somebody could drop a book like White Fragility and it just clicks? Mm. So in 2015, I started my blog because I noticed uh, in school and all my classes. Uh, so. I, so I started my blog because I wanted to primarily write about these kind of issues. And that's because a lot of my peers, my professors, my classmates had already adopted a view that I realized wasn't mainstream yet. Uh, it was becoming mainstream at the time. This is, this is a shortly after Black Lives Matter. Okay. And I realized that if we Christians don't Im don't uh, jump at the very forefront of this issue and fight against social justice ideology, now not justice, not human rights. I'm referring to these kind of ideas that assumes that white people are inherently racist. That assumes that every action by a white person or a white cop against a black person um, is because of racism. Um, or I should say any negative action, um, anything that leads to the death of a black person by, by the hands of a cop or a white person, they assume, unfortunately, many times it's because of racism. Or that the idea that America is systemically racist, even though we don't have any laws or, or, or any uh, policies that we can point to, that we could say, yes, these are laws or policies that are racist against black people. So anyway, um, I mentioned that because our our system in terms of the education system has been already teaching these ideas for a long time. It's just that many of us, I think, weren't aware of it yep. or had taken it for granted. So, for example, when George Floyd gets killed by a white cop, I would say that a reasonable person would say, this is murder, this is horrible, it's an injustice but we don't know his motivations. 
But what we don't realize is for a long time, books like White Fragility have been around for a while. This is a new latest book and it's the most popular book, but it's not the first book of its type. There are other ideas out there. Things like, uh, I always struggle to say this word, so I'll slow down. <laughs> I'll slow down, I mean. It's intersectionality. There we go. It's a there mouthful. There it is. 10 yeah. out of 10. 10 out of 10. <laughs> um, these ideas have been out there for a long time. So we might say, well, we don't know Derek Chauvin's intentions in committing murder against a black person. But these ideas already say, no, the system is already racist. White people are already racist. White people with power, especially white, cisgender, straight males like Derek Chauvin are the most oppressive people. So even if they don't, even if he didn't really intend to kill him because he's black, society as a whole has given him power and bias against black people that he may not even realize he has. And therefore, any action he does that leads to a disparity or that leads to a, the, a death or a murder of a black man is racist. So our culture has been embracing this stuff for a long time, especially young people. And that's why immediately when George Floyd gets killed or when Breonna Taylor gets killed by cops or Ahmaud Arbery about a, a couple of weeks before, before all these events, right. already there, there is um, a belief already that America is already racist systemically. So if that's already in people's minds, immediately it's not going to be okay let's be unified in pursuing the truth in their mind they've already known the truth for a long time right and this is and this just validates that particular narrative that they already believed in yes yes for sure yeah and i mean i i try to focus primarily on um the cultural ideological aspect but in the book, she even hints at this, uh, as in Robin D'Angelo. This is not just ideological, it's political. Hmm. It is. In the book, she does say, we need to change the system. Now, she doesn't say necessarily how, but she does indicate, suggest, that it's by getting rid of individuality. Essentially, she says, it's, she mentions capitalism in a negative sense. There is a Marxist view from a lot of these anti-racist black lives matter is they've admitted that they are trained marxist if you look at their website it's a lot of a lot of marxist rhetoric and i think that's also at play here a marxist revolution like in the past isn't going to happen that just that's changed however although you know, given the riots, um, <laughs> yeah, who knows anymore, right? Right. But, but it's it, the revolution now is much more of a reform. It's abolishing systems. It's abolishing uh, the police, uh, the police force. It's uh, it's 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 abolishing um, just the constitution in America. It's abolishing all these things because they promote individuality instead of a collective idea that these anti-racist or critical theorists or social justice um, groups uh, advocate for. What, we've, we've talked about it already, and what I, what I most appreciated about your review was essentially uh, watching folks 
the the whole principle of anti-racism is not merely uh hey you know pride in your own skin color uh and a sort of sneer at other uh skin colors it's a sinful thing it's it's but we've watched them go full-blown really adopt the same principles and utilize them the other direction and i don't know if you saw did you see nick cannon's uh little uh quote yeah i actually just wrote an article about that um hours ago yeah um which to me is i the minute you bring this into uh like hard biology, raw biology, out you know, in a secular worldview where it is sort of Darwinian. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he seems to like totally grant it. He just yep. wants to say, uh, but to be honest, it's the white people that are the beasts. It's exactly. not the black people that are the beasts. And it's like, I think <laughs> the idea of beasts at all is the problem. Um, yeah. But what's scary is that uh, there are white people who believe just that, but the other direction, and -hmm. they're ready to go. Like, I feel like if they heard that, they would be like, okay, let's go then. You know, it's like all of a sudden you've brought the conversation into a world that no one wins. Everyone just gets eaten alive. Exactly, exactly. And the concern is there's a reason why... Now, they're dying off slowly, although they're dispersing into other groups. But there's a reason why the alt-right uh, grew, you know, also came into prominence alongside groups like Black Lives Matter. Because they're all borrowing the same kind of identity politics. They're all about where we are good, the other is bad. Or as in, white people are good, black people are bad. Or black people are good, white people are bad. Right. And if you do not, if you embrace that kind of humanism, if you do not embrace human rights under, um, uh, you know, with the influence of biblical Christianity and what God says about our equality, um, you, that's where you'll find yourself. It's it, unfortunately, it's all a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle, and to be honest with you, I'm 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 a little surprised, and I'm and I'm glad I'm I'm glad this is the case, but I I think you were hinting at this. I'm concerned that if we do not um, if we do not stop where we are trending towards with this kind of um, anti-white sentiments, I'm worried about just greater threats coming from white supremacists. Um, To be honest with you, I was very surprised that white supremacists didn't show up with guns at some of these riots. Uh, I was honestly expecting that. I was praying that it wouldn't happen. And, um, you know, unfortunately, this is just a vicious cycle. And I'm hoping that by addressing these things, people will just say, no, you don't have to pick a side. Just pick God's side. Just affirm biblical justice and you will do right to your white neighbors to your black neighbors to everybody that's good that's good now samuel uh a sort of jump i would love for you to introduce introduce yourself to us who who are you you're from ghana you're now in canada did the canadians take you can we help uh who who are you man (laughs) Canadians don't take anything. We we ask very very nicely. We say please, please, please. Um, no. So I um I was born in Ghana. Uh, I moved from Ghana when I was ten years old. 
and I live just outside of Toronto right now in a city uh, named Brampton. And uh, I am a blogger, uh, as we've said, but I also I'm also a pro-life advocate at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Uh, we work in the educational arm. Um, my job is I do some speaking, but primarily my goal is to connect local churches to the pro-life issue. Uh, Canada is easily the most pro-abortion uh, Western nation in the, um, in the world. Um, you know, killing any child, of course, is always wrong, but we at least like, we're the only Western nation in the entire world that has zero uh, laws that limit abortion. So you can have you can theoretically have an abortion right before. I mean, on, on like the last day before wow. you have the baby. Um, uh, so I, I think the only the only nations in the world and you it'll be hard. You, well, most people are surprised when they hear this, but the only other nations in the world that have the same laws that we do or the lack of laws that we do on abortion is China and North Korea. So that's two two um, communist nations, and Canada is just the other. So only three nations in the world have zero laws in abortion. Wow. And uh, yeah, so you know, it's um, yeah. So my so what, what we're doing here, what I'm doing here, is just trying to advance the pro-life movement uh, in America. I know uh, I follow all these things naturally, and I know that. Um, you know, a lot of Americans are also very dismayed about um, abortion in America. But I always tell Americans, while it's nothing to celebrate, um, gla be glad it's not worse uh, because we're fighting an uphill battle here. Uh, we trust God that uh, we will be able to um, end abortion completely in our nation uh, and the world. But still, uh, I always tell Americans that <laughs> you could have it a lot worse. Amen. When did you start that job? That was uh, May of last year. So it's just been um, over an e a year since I started. Um, and uh, it's been uh, an incredible blessing just um, be able to be working with uh, mostly Christians and um, just being able to have an impact on people's lives and changing their minds and abortion. It means a lot to me. When I was um, younger, I, I, when, I was an, when I was an unbeliever, uh, one of my... One of my um, friends, um, you know, she reached out to me and said, Sam, what would you say to a girl that was considering an abortion? And uh, at the time, you know, at, at the time, her and I were very, we would just ask each other random questions and things like that. And I thought that was just what she was asking me. I didn't know it was uh, the most important question that I had ever uh, been asked at the time. Yeah. And uh, I said, um, I don't know. I didn't know anything about abortion. So I said, I don't know what I would say. And that was it. Then a year later, I learned that a few days after she asked me that question, um, she, she got an abortion. Um, so she was asking that as a cry for help. And uh, I had no idea. So that's something I've been burned, burdened by for a long time. So to have the privilege of working in the pro-life movement and being able to change minds and help women keep their babies is a, a huge blessing to me because it's my way of trying to undo um, my my failure um, all those years all those years ago. So you mentioned your your primary job there is connecting churches to that movement. Um, could you describe what what is the pro life movement look like in Canada? Is it a strong one? Have you seen it grow over the mm -hmm. last year? W what's the nature of the pro life movement there? Hmm, well, it's definitely grown over the last year, and um, I stress the last year because that's I've 
I mean, I've been, I guess, involved for a couple of years now. So I, I did an internship at my current organization okay. uh, before they hired me. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely growing. I, I know at our organization, we're very new. I think we started essentially about 15 years ago, I think. Uh, and we became more of what we are now, uh, I think, about seven, eight years ago. And um, we started off with three, five people. And now we're at, we have nationwide about 35 full-time um, you know, employees and a lot of volunteers and things like that. So that's just for, the, for our organization. In Canada, the pro-life movement definitely isn't as strong as it is in America. Um, you know, but, but it's growing. You know, we're... Um, well, we're, you know, so in, in, in the States, you guys are trying to get rid of a law, you know, Roe v. Wade. Right. Uh, over here, we're trying to come up with a law that would, <laughs> so we actually have a group here called We Need a Law because it's like, yeah, you know, we want to, now, of course, ideally, you know, what we want is to abolish, have a law that would abolish abortion completely. Sure. But we know that over here, um, we, had, you know, we know that, uh, that you know, it's not realistic to expect that so soon. So we're just trying to change minds right now. We're trying to get churches to be involved because over here, I think in America, you have a lot of churches that are involved with the educational arm. Now, educational arm is more of just changing the culture and trying to convince people that abortion is wrong. Then you have the what we call the pastoral arm, which is the, the counseling aspects, the helping women. And then you have the political arm, which is, um, you know, just people who work in introducing pro-life uh, laws and policies. And over here, a lot of churches are very much involved with the pastoral aspects, naturally so. They are very helpful that with um, working with pregnancy care centers and things like that and getting women um, who are vulnerable, women who are who have unplanned pregnancies. Um, they do a good job of helping them, you know, uh, get on their feet and to keep their babies. That's good, however, we don't have a lot of churches or a lot of pastors who are involved with um, speaking to the culture and trying to change the communities so that then you wouldn't have women who are vulnerable to get abortions. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a diff slightly different landscape than we have here in America. Uh, sorry, in Canada compared to America, but yeah. um we're hopeful and uh, that we're seeing some good changes right now. Um, we're seeing every day. I mean, I started working, I guess, I started, you know, I guess volunteering two years ago. And by the grace of God, I've been able to change over a hundred and twenty people's minds in abortion. Wow. And that's just me as just one person. And we have so many other people doing it too. So, and um, we are also, we use something called AVP or uh, abortion victim photography. Um, we show people what happens to babies when they get murdered. Um, and 70% um, of people who, who see those pictures, they change their minds in abortion. So we oftentimes just drive around the, the city just showing people what happens to these babies when they get killed. And um, we know from testimonies that's changing a lot of people's minds too. People are, we've had, we've had stories of people who were walking and planning to go get abortions. Then they would see the images and then they would change their mind because they don't, they don't want to do that to their own babies. So we're very encouraged by what God is doing through us in Canada. Good, man. Praise God. Can, uh, how can folks support what you're doing over there? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm involved, I suppose, in two, uh, ministries, uh, two things that I'm very passionate about. Um, the first being my pro-life work. 
And, um, you know, for that, if people want to know more about my my pro-life work, they can go to endthekilling.ca. That's endthekilling.ca. Um, then if they want to donate, uh, I would be happy to. My, my salary is completely 100 uh, percent fundraised. Um, so if people want to support my work here in Canada, they can uh, go to endthekilling.ca and then they can look for my name at the donation section. And then also my second, um, you know, passion is blogging. Um, I blog about abortion. I blog about these racial issues, cultural issues, political issues from a theological uh, point of view. And um, that I just started doing a Patreon um, because it's essentially my second job. <laughs> I commit a lot of hours a week to studying, reading and writing and things like that. So um, if people want to support that, too, I'd be very happy for that. And they can find me. at So my blog is slow to write dot com and they can find me at Patreon slash sorry, Patreon dot com slash slow to write. And um, I'd be very thankful for their support. Awesome, man. I'll make sure those uh, that those links get in the show notes to make it easy on folks. Um, mm-hmm. Samuel, thanks so much for your time, man. I don't want to take any more of your Friday night. You're on the East Coast. Um <laughs> I don't know what you guys do over there in Canada on a Friday night, but, uh, but well, I don't know about my other Canadians, but I'm in the mood for a barbecue. So I'm going to have a, a good time right now in my backyard, you know, barbecuing some meat. So I'm good. Okay, man. Well, far be it for me to keep you from that. I really appreciate you coming on, man. I'd love to have you. You're a recurring guest now. So anytime I hit you up, man, oh. you have to come on. So that's, I'll be happy to. I'll know, be very, I'm, good, I'm surprised good or, it's a very short. So go ahead. No, I said good or bad. You're stuck. So. <laughs> I'm very happy to. And next time we can talk about the Backstreet Boys. I was going to say, we got a lot to get to still, but I'm going to let you go. I want to know how you got uh, from Ghana to Canada. I got I to gotta figure that one out. And then uh, we've got to talk about the Backstreet Boys. So thank you so much, man, for coming on, giving me your time. And I will make sure all those links are available for folks in the show notes. Thanks, man. Thank you.